Theological education should be accessible. In the past, men have had to leave their local churches to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, you can now complete a seminary education while staying in your own church and being mentored by your own pastor. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Edwards wrote this dissertation concerning the nature of true virtue because one of the things that was present within the Enlightenment writings was a consideration of what virtue is. and He engages many of these writings because they had set forth the purpose of the world as being one in which human virtue was developed and, and with the uh, consistent development of human virtue, this is that which made us well-pleasing to God. Edwards viewed this basically as uh, a subtle attack upon divine revelation, upon the reality that we're justified only by faith in Christ and by His imputed righteousness. And if we have any idea that our own virtue can commend us to God, then we have neither an understanding of our sin, of God's way of salvation, or of what true virtue is. And so he wants to take the uh, rationalist understanding of virtue on its own ground. He wants to argue that indeed true virtue is at the heart of why God has created the world, but their understanding of true virtue is something that is totally misguided. And so he's trying to, to redefine the basic agenda of the Enlightenment uh, attack upon Christianity uh, one issue at a time. And this issue of virtue is one that was important uh, for virtually all the Enlightenment writers because they considered man basically as unfallen and that the purpose of man was to develop a kind of virtue that would be good, first of all, for a society and for the well-being of other people and would finally commend us uh, to God and eternal life. So Edwards uh, discusses this, the nature of true virtue. Uh, he <clears throat> begins by showing his first, his first section is entitled Showing the, the Essence of True Virtue, the thing wherein the essence of true virtue consists. In this, uh, he defines true virtue. He says, a true virtue is the beauty of the qualities and exercises, or virtue is the beauty of the qualities and exercises of the heart are those actions which proceed from them. So he wants to make a distinction between what is true virtue and what is apparent virtue. There can be apparent virtue on the outside, the world cannot exist without apparent virtue. These are not things that are true virtue, but honesty. People will be honest because they know that they will get along better in their business dealings if they're honest. Uh, they will be kind to people because they know that people will show up and will buy from them if they are kind to them. And these things have the appearance of virtue and people respond to virtue in a positive way, but they do not constitute true virtue. But God has so designed the world that 
intrinsically we all understand that virtue is one of the things that causes us to uh, get along amicably with other people. And so we seek to mimic it, even though in our hearts we're not really pursuing true virtue. Then he makes a distinction, not only between true virtue and apparent virtue, but between what he calls particular beauty and general beauty. There are some things that have a beauty that are in, 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 in themselves appear to be beautiful, but they may be opposite to a general beauty. For example, if there are thieves uh, or pirates on a boat who have robbed three or four ships and sunk them, uh, and they have all of this uh, loot that they have taken, and among themselves they share and share alike, and they make sure that no one uh, misses out on his part of the loot that they have taken. If you isolate that simply to itself and you see people sharing and concerned about others and not wanting to be dishonest in their dealing with others, this seems to be a particular virtue. But the general picture of it, of course, is these are people that are worthy of being uh, hung. And uh, it is a very ugly thing that they are being, acting so virtuous over material that, that they have stolen from others at the cost of their lives. And so these, this relationship between true and apparent virtue and what he calls particular and general beauty are related to each other in that way. So after more discussion then, he says, <clears throat> so, so virtue, uh, true virtue, consists essentially in what he calls benevolence toward being in general. This is not benevolence to particular things apart from the general. It is not something that is complacence toward being in general, though this will become involved later, but it is benevolence toward being in general. We have to consider the whole of being, the entirety of being. And benevolence toward it means that it is something that arises out of our will. Complacence or complacent love or complacence toward something is a good attitude toward a thing, treating a thing in a in an amicable way because we receive benefit from it, because it pleases us. Uh, that, is, that is complacent love or complacence. Uh, benevolence is something in which we have an amicable uh, attitude towards something because it arises out of our own desire to be amicable. It arises out of our own desire to be kind. And so true virtue is this benevolence. It's benevolence toward being in general. The second object of a virtuous propensity of heart, not just being in general, but benevolent being. Since virtue, true virtue, is benevolence toward being in general, when we find another being that is benevolent, then that being takes the largest part of our own benevolence. And in fact, that is the point at which eventually benevolence becomes complacence in a virtuous way. Another being which shares the same benevolence toward being in general. Now he, he argues that this necessarily arises from pure benevolence to being in general. Uh, it is not imperceptible. It is not uh, benevolence toward being in general. It, is, it does not lack perception. It does not lack a critical acumen. 
uh, and benevolence toward being in general affirms and is, is increased by another being that we, see ha that, ha that we see has benevolence toward being in general. That encourages our own benevolence toward being uh, in, in general. Even as we see there in, in Philippians uh, 2, the, uh, uh, the benevolence that Christ showed toward us as sinners is something that should increase our desire to live in the way that he lives. And so the same way as benevolence toward being in general is a virtue we should have, if we find another being that has benevolence toward being in general, that increases our own uh, desire to act in such a way. And so that being, in a sense, receives more of our own benevolence. He says, <coughs> then, that true moral or spiritual beauty consists in this secondary ground. That is, the secondary ground of, of, of having special benevolence toward another being that has benevolence toward being in general. And it is this secondary ground that begins to become complacent love. On this account, he says, these acts are beautiful. They imply consent and union with being in general. Spiritual beauty is the primary ground of complacence. Love to oneself in particular might be a secondary ground of complacence, but this is the primary objective foundation of it. That is, a being that has benevolence toward being in general. So we move from benevolence toward being in general, of a, a, an amical uh, attitude toward all things that have being simply because of the uh, d desire of our own hearts for the well-being of all things. We find another being that has uh, benevolence toward being in general. This increases our own capacity for that. And then this generates a, a love for that thing that uh, creates this uh, this, this greater sense of well-being in ourselves. That then becomes what is called complacence. Uh, we benefit from that, but we benefit from it in a virtuous way. It is not something in which our, ourselves are the primary concern, but it is that uh, love for a thing in which we find beauty in itself because it has benevolence toward being in general. So just those two things, keep those two ideas in mind, benevolence, and complacence. True virtue is benevolence toward being in general. Uh, complacence then arises out of finding and having affection for another being that has benevolence toward being in general. So the spiritual beauty, the spiritual beauty of another being that has a benevolence toward being in general is the primary ground of complacence. The primary objective foundation, that is, a being that has benevolence toward being in general. Now, the degree of amiableness, the degree of our sense of an amicable relationship toward this being is compounded by the quantity of that being and the quantity of the benevolence. And so it's the difference if you could discover that there's a bug that has benevolence toward being in general uh, you would approve that and you would have some degree of complacence toward that, but if you find a person, uh, an actual human being made in the image of God that has benevolence toward being in general, then the quantity of being and the, and the, the quality of the being of that particular thing increases the benevolence and increases the complacence that you would have toward that being. 
But if a being has all of being uh, and is the one who, has, who is the origin of all true benevolence, then that is the being that has, demands the most of our own benevolence and the most of our complacence. And so very early, uh, Jonathan Edwards sets the standard, and you, you can see that he's driving toward the idea that benevolence toward being in general, first of all, has God as its object. What he's trying to, to prove here is the validity of the command that true virtue consists in loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so he's beginning this, this philosophical journey uh, toward that by, uh, by arguing. And, and within each of these points, he argues philosophically, showing the absurdity of, of other viewpoints and, and defending his definition of what benevolence is and what complacency is and why true virtue is benevolence toward being in general, but then how this leads into uh, complacence and how complacence is both benevolence and complacence are increased uh, in light of the, the kind of being it is and the quantity of being uh, that this object of our affection actually has. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> none can relish this beauty, he says, that does not have that temper in himself. And so if we find a being that has benevolence toward being in general, and benevolence toward being in general is the foundation of virtue, and it is, it, it is finding that in another being that allows our love to go out toward them, then that means that there is intrinsic to us uh, a, uh, an, an approval of those ideas of both benevolence and complacence. But if we do not have that temper in ourselves, then that being that has benevolence toward being in general will not be attractive to us. And so this is the, uh, he begins to, to move this toward those definitions of virtue that do not set forth a principle by which God becomes the final and, and most um, uh, clearly uh, uh, rational object of our benevolence. And these systems, these enlightenment systems of virtue did not. And so He's, at the same time that he's arguing philosophically, he is showing how there is an inadequacy and even a moral perversity in the arguments that stop short of saying God should be the final source of our affections. So none can relish this particular kind of beauty, that is, benevolence toward being in general, uh, and this kind of beauty that has such an infinite quantity of being. None can relish this that did not have that temper in himself. <clears throat> now, the second major part, portion, that's his demonstration of what the, what the essence of true virtue, uh, wherein the essence of true virtue consists, benevolence toward being in general. The second part, he sh shows how that love, wherein true virtue consists, respects the divine being and created things. Uh, in this, he simply aff affirms, in the very first part, that true virtue must chiefly consists in love to God. It chiefly consists in love to God because if benevolence toward being in general is true virtue, then our love for God must be first and primary because God is the one, is the single most uh, prominent being that has benevolence toward being in general. He has the greatest of being. 
just from the standpoint of his infinite existence, from the standpoint of his, uh, his eminence. Everything about him, all being consists in him. In him we live and move and have our being. And of course his argument that God is the only thing that genuine, genuinely and truly has being, he's the only one that is self-existent, means that if we have benevolence toward being in general, that he will be the, the primary object of our benevolence. But then if we look at benevolence toward being in general as becoming also complacence, we find in that being that has the most of being, we find him to be a virtuous being, we find that he has benevolence toward being in general, uh, then this is the, the second reason why our love for God must be primary. Not only a benevolence toward God, but a complacence toward him because he is worthy of love. He is, does not have just being, but he has virtuous being. Therefore, God is infinitely the appropriate object of both benevolence and complacence. Now he <clears throat> looks at this and he says, is there anything that we can add to God by this? Is, is there any way that our approval of God uh, blesses him uh, in a sense that finite beings can be blessed by the approval that other people put on them? And he says, well, no, that is not the case, but there are certain things that, are, that naturally follow from understanding that true virtue consists in benevolence and complacence toward this greatest and best of all beings. We cannot add to his happiness, but we can look at him and realize that he is infinitely happy and we can rejoice in his happiness. We have no ability to add to his happiness because he is perfectly happy and blessed uh, in himself, but we as creatures can participate in that by rejoicing in his happiness. We cannot add to his glory because he has infinite glory in himself, but we can rejoice in his glory and we can let our lives be such as seek to reflect and promote his glory by praising him and by setting him forth as the, as the most excellent of all being before other people. So we can promote his glory, we cannot add to his glory. And if he is considered at all in one's understanding of virtue, then he must be the chief consideration. Once you introduce God into the equation, if he is to be considered at all, then because he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, then he has to be the chief consideration. So true virtue immediately drives us to see that if we do not regard God as central to the whole understanding of virtue, we have completely missed the point of what virtue is. He is in every way to be the supreme object of our benevolence because of the, the uh, infinite nature of his being and because of the kind of his being, he is the infinite object of our complacence. Now, but, but <clears throat> benevolence toward any other being primarily is nothing short of self-love. 
no matter how expanded it is, no matter how it, virtuous it seems to be, if we try to develop spheres of virtue, spheres of activity that we consider to be virtuous, and yet they do not include the glory of God in it, they do not include our benevolence toward God and our complacence toward Him, if they do not include our enjoying His happiness and the promotion of His glory, then this is simply a, a, a kind of self-love. He explains that by talking about different spheres of concern. It is very obvious that a person is concerned only about himself and if he regards all other people as beneath him and unworthy of his attention and he is always uh, seeking to advance his own well-being and his own joy and his own wealth at the expense of others, then everyone recognizes that this is not a virtuous person and this is not a person that you want to be around. This is someone that you want to avoid. This is someone you would reprobate. This is someone you, uh, you think is, is hostile to all good things because he is totally self-centered. Anyone can see that. But if a person is concerned about his family and he is good to his family and he promotes the well-being of his family and the safety of his family, we look at that and we say that has some degree of virtue uh, in it. Uh, because he is not simply concerned about himself, he acts in a sacrificial way at times toward his children and toward his wife and so forth, but it is still, in one sense, as Edwards would call it, a private sphere. It is just less obviously self-centered. He is trying to create a sphere in which uh, he functions well and he's thought, he's thought well of by, by others and he creates a comfort zone for himself by making sure that his particular family is safe. And then there can be perhaps a, uh, a governor of a, of a state who governs the state well and he seeks to institute laws and seeks to institute business in such a way as, as there is prosperity within the state, but he has little concern about other states or about people outside the jurisdiction of his own, of his own government. Well, this, this has the appearance, a bigger appearance of being uh, virtuous because of the number of people that benefit from it, but it is still a, a private sphere. And so on it goes, and he, he expands this even into the whole world. If there were a person who could rule the world, uh, this world in and of itself, considered only by, as a created order, only by the people in it, he governs it in a virtuous way, so everyone is, has an opportunity to, to achieve prosperity. We would look upon this as a person who is a wise person and a virtuous person because he has the well-being of other people in his mind, but it is still a created thing. It's within the created order. It ignores the reality of all other being, which, is, which consists of that being who, or the being who has the greatest amount of being and the only one who has self-existence. So it is still a, a private sphere. And he, as he drives this point by point, he says that all of these things, no matter how expanded the sphere, if it omits that being that has the greatest amount of being, it is still a private sphere and it is just a species of self-love. We see it very clearly when, it is, when a person isolates himself in that way. It is not seen as clearly if a person's apparent virtue includes the entire world, but if he still is excluding the greatest amount of being, it is simply a type of self-love. It establishes a private sphere as its ultimate good, and thus it is against true benevolence and is in opposition to true virtue. 
Thank you for listening to the weekly discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.